dinosaurs and man, two species separated by 65 million years of evolution, just been suddenly thrown back into the mix together. How can we possibly have the slightest idea of what to expect? Welcome to the Neo-Jurassic Podcast, a weekly speculative exploration into the wild possibilities of a Neo-Jurassic world. I'm your very humble host, Bri, and I'm thrilled to welcome you to what is our very first episode. One of the biggest challenges facing the Jurassic franchise moving forward is to provide a semi-rational purpose behind the de-extinction of enormous Mesozoic animals. Sure, people would pay truckloads of cash to visit a dinosaur theme park, and I'd even go so far as to say that even after the events of Jurassic World, there would be at minimum 74 million people out there clamoring for a visit. One need only reflect upon the U.S.'s response to the pandemic in 2020 to limit any doubt you might have about that. However, the current trajectory of the Jurassic franchise hints to a world in which this technology has been embraced for purposes well beyond just theme park monsters. Crichton's novels, many possible applications were offered, ranging from medical testing to patented designer pets with patented designer foods. The Jurassic World series so far has pretty much just focused on weaponized animals engineered for military applications, but I'm sure that is probably on the lower end of actual real-life applications. A major aspect of my interest in a neo-Jurassic world is imagining how our world might respond to these possibilities. Each episode of this season will open with a fictionalized version of this podcast that contextualizes and dramatizes the possibilities of this technology with real-world science and real-world motivations. What possible motivation could there be for resurrecting a predatory pterosaur the size of a small plane? Well, the story laid out in this episode's intro, while obviously satirical in nature, was also the most plausible situation I could imagine. The circumstances surrounding the tragic death of Edison ex-CEO Aaron Peter's 13-year-old son have been shrouded in total mystery. Up until very recently, like yesterday, nobody had any clue of what happened during last month's deadly incident at the new Edison X compound in Texas. Now, in the wake of yesterday's press conference, a flood of truly bonkers new details have been revealed. Details that would be of particular interest to my fellow Neo-Jurassic listeners. Buckle up, y'all. Not only are the details surrounding this tragic death kind of shocking, they are directly linked to the current proliferation of de-extinction projects popping up all around the globe. So before we get into it, here's some context. Since his acquisition of Edison X 17 years ago, Aaron Peters has aggressively expanded into a myriad of industries, aeronautics, aerospace, automobile, neurotechnology, and now apparently genetic engineering. In recent years, many of Peter's ambitious projects have been the subject of significant criticism from members of the scientific community as well as business leaders. They've argued most of these projects have done more for the company's media standing than achieve any meaningful scientific advancements. These days, Mr. Peter's wealth and status as an industrial tycoon has more or less been eclipsed entirely by his own celebrity and consistent pursuits of spectacle over purpose. 
Five years ago, Edison X was one of the very first companies to make the exodus from Silicon Valley to Texas. No doubt Peter's very cozy relationship with both the US and Texas government played a major factor in this decision. Lax regulation, tax breaks, enormous subsidies, and a comparably enormous plot of land proved to be an irresistible offer for Peter's. And so it was decided that a sprawling new Edison X compound will be built just 40 miles outside of Austin. A year into construction, however, locals took notice of something never mentioned in any of the announced plans. Something that appeared to be a colossal geodesic dome. The rumor mill went into overdrive on both a local and international level. A mile and a half from the main compound, something truly huge was being built. And the world was left wondering, what the hell is that thing? In the media, the most popular guess at the time was some kind of 21st century homage to the World's Fair or something. The type of grandiose hollow spectacle Peters had become so well known for over the years. Others affiliated with the company whispered about the dome being part of a new conservation project. This idea was pretty quickly met with considerable skepticism, as many noted, myself included, that Edison X had a pretty solid track record of pursuing interplanetary colonization over any earthbound conservation efforts. Initially, I had kind of assumed the structure would be Peter's over-the-top interpretation of a biodome, a means of meeting conservation efforts and the colonization of Mars halfway or something. However, as the dome neared completion, I kind of developed a theory of my own, a theory that as of yesterday has more or less been confirmed. The structure, now completed, is said to be about 17 stories tall at its highest point and about a mile in diameter. Until very recently, the dome remained a total mystery. Notably, even those within the upper echelons of the company were kept entirely in the dark regarding its purpose. Security around the compound has been said to rival that of military operations, and security around the dome itself is reportedly on another level entirely. Those within the company gave the mysterious looming dome the affectionate nickname of the Death Star 3, a name that quickly took root in the surrounding community and media as well. Now, in the wake of this truly tragic loss of life, details regarding the true purpose of the unfortunately named Death Star 3 are finally coming to light. And as I'm sure many of you have surely guessed at this point, it's an aviary. Edison X is now officially among the growing list of companies worldwide to have successfully de-extincted Mesozoic megafauna. Undoubtedly, by reverse engineering the once proprietary de-extinction technologies pioneered by InGen way back in the day. It's safe to assume Edison X's team has taken InGen's base pteranodon genome and engineered a group of Quetzalcoatlus Northropi. This really probably shouldn't come as too much of a surprise as the company has a long, and I mean long, problematic history of reverse engineering existing patents and plowing through any legal disputes. Now, specific details surrounding the death of Rand Peters are pretty scarce, but I can tell you this. On the day of the incident, four individuals entered the Edison X aviary. Aaron Peters, Rand Peters, project manager Robert Peel, and the animal's lead handler, Ellen Kim. This intimate presentation was apparently going to be the CEO's first introduction to Edison X's Quetzalcoatlus program. Allegedly, Peters was given strict instruction to attend the event alone. Peters, of course, as he so often does, defied company protocol and brought his 13-year-old son along for the show. What could go wrong? Unfortunately, we don't really know much of what exactly occurred, but I think it's fairly safe to assume at this point that young Rand Peters was indeed eaten. In yesterday's press conference, project manager Robert Peel said the animals were much more intelligent than anticipated. 
They had been regularly observed exhibiting coordinated hunting behavior and generally displayed behavioral traits comparable to other social predators. According to Peel, over the past four years, the pterosaurs seldom, if ever, displayed any aggressive behavior towards their handlers. Hearing this, it becomes slightly more understandable how the tween son of the billionaire CEO was given clearance to the presentation. Now you're probably wondering, why on earth would a company best known for trying to colonize Mars be investing untold billions into the extinct flying reptile business? Well, I can think of at least two reasons. The first, of course, being Aaron Peters' spectacular ego and full-time pursuit of tech spectacle. I mean, of course Peters would be the one to slap a patent on the largest flying animal the Earth has ever known. Of course he would! And what's more, the cute marketing synergy of it all had to have been irresistible. It's worth noting, what we know as Texas today was Quetzalcoatlus' home back in the Cretaceous. And with news of Peter starting his own major league basketball team in Austin, well, I would not be surprised to see a Quetzalcoatlus mascot bouncing around in the bleachers of the new Edison X Mega Stadium. Although, you know, in, in wake of current events, that may now be a, <laughs> a little less likely. Then there's the reason detailed in yesterday's press conference, biomimicry. Over the past decade or so, biomimicry has proven to have tremendous potential in the aeronautics industry. Standing the height of a giraffe with the weight of a full-grown grizzly bear, Quetzalcoatlus would appear to be incapable of powered flight. Yet they did fly, and they did it exceptionally well. According to Peel, the project has already led to several promising lines of research. New quadrupedally launched drones, a polymer that somehow mimics the structures of pterosaur bones, and major insights into the aerodynamic features of their huge wing membranes. It's honestly unclear what's going to happen with the animals in the wake of this truly tragic event. At least one of the company's five Quetzalcoatlus has reportedly been euthanized. It's anyone's guess what will happen with the remaining four. If you couldn't guess by the intro, our very first episode will be devoted entirely to the past, present, and future of pterosaurs in the Jurassic franchise. In particular, we'll be focusing on what very well may be my all-time favorite Mesozoic beastie, Quetzalcoatlus. I've been waiting, hoping, and wishing for Quetzalcoatlus to make an appearance in this franchise for the better part of like two and a half decades now. And frankly, I am baffled as to why these enormous flying murderheads haven't shown up yet. Joining us for this deep dive into the mysterious and magnificent world of pterosaurs is one of the world's foremost experts on the matter, Dr. Mike Habib. Those of you that follow paleontology may very well be familiar with Dr. Habib. He penned that wonderful pterosaur cover story for Scientific American in the fall of 2019 and over the past decade has authored and co-authored many articles on pterosaur research. Being both a paleontologist as well as a biomechanist, Dr. Habib was particularly well suited to working through the myriad mysteries surrounding pterosaurs. Up until relatively recently, it was fairly unclear how the largest of these pterosaurs, known as Ishtarkids, managed to get airborne. With an estimated weight in like the range of 600 pounds, it was even a question whether or not these humongous animals could even fly to begin with. Armed with the confounding physiology and physics of these bizarre and beautiful animals, Dr. Habib has provided tremendous insights into what these animals were and were not capable of. Yes, it looks like these enormous reptiles did indeed own the late Cretaceous skies, but how does an animal with the height of a giraffe, a head, 10 feet long or so at the end of a long neck, and the weight of a grizzly bear managed to launch itself into the air. 
Pterosaurs, unlike birds, were quadrupedal, a feature of their design that they utilized to the fullest extent possible. It was this doubly powerful quadrupedal leap launch that made it possible for these colossal ashdarkids to become airborne. In addition to working out the flight mechanics of these plane-sized critters, Dr. Habib was also part of the team responsible for describing that huge new Canadian ashdarkid discovered in 2019, Cryo-Dracon. If it's not already obvious, I'm happy to just come out and say it. I have been a huge fan of his work for a while now, and I am extremely excited and extremely honored to share our conversation with y'all. We're going to start things off discussing Dr. Habib's relationship with the Jurassic franchise, its pterosaurs, and the very real dangers of a hungry Quetzalcoatlus. Let's dive in. So my relationship to the Jurassic franchise is primarily just as, as an old fan. I mean, it, it came out, the original Jurassic Park was released in 1993. Um, I'm going to give my way my age here by saying that I was 13 at the time. Well, just about to turn 13, actually. I was, I was 12, uh, going on 13. And, uh, and it was, I mean, it was just such a strong rekindling of my ongoing passion for paleontology I'd had since I was a young kid. And so it was a very, it was, uh, it was a really important film for me in terms of, of making that, uh, uh, making that dream or, or I should say maybe putting that dream back on the, on the front burner. It wasn't like something that I, I hadn't dreamed of, of doing or studying. Uh, I'd, I actually announced when I was four that I wanted to be a paleontologist when I grew up, uh, which was something of interest because I'm not sure my parents at the time knew that I, at age four, could say paleontologist uh, <laughs> properly. And they learned that one uh, uh, fairly quickly. But um, uh, but yeah, it's been, you know, and I've enjoyed the, the series ever, ever since. Um, I have not had a deep professional role. I have... Uh, I've been a speaker for multiple um, premier events associated with the Natural History Museum in Los Angeles County uh, for like the Jurassic World uh, sort of reboot of the franchise, if you will. And mm -hmm. and there and I I my life has intersected with the consultants on Jurassic Park in a number of different ways. Uh, my PhD advisor. Uh, is good friends of Jack Horner, who is the consultant on it for many years, and the new consultant for Jurassic World is uh, Steve Brasati, who is a old, old friend of mine as well. So to some extent, I guess I've been able to bend the ear <laughs> of the of the consultants in Jurassic <laughs> World, and I've talked about it a lot, and uh, I've you know given you know professional events related to Jurassic Park and the and Jurassic World and, and the whole Jurassic franchise, um, but I've never been like on a set or or anything of of that nature for it, uh, and I was. Um, I was briefly involved as a consultant on a pitch for a for a potential game uh, to go Jurassic World, uh, which was not picked up. Uh, so I, I didn't have anything to do with the Jurassic World game that was picked up, but uh, I was involved in a pitch. What what was the game that wasn't, if I may ask? Uh, so this was pitched by Seamus Blackley, and the trailer pitch that he put together was a pair of Quetzalcoatlus uh, picking people off at a beach, um, hitting surfers and, and, and landing on and crushing a, a lifeguard house and such. 
and and it, it, that was a game uh, of what type exactly? Like, what was the uh, intended experience for gamers? Uh, you know, it was. I think it, it was going to the plan, as I understand it, was to harken back um, a little bit to like I guess the old uh, Sony version where there was a playthrough ver- uh, playthrough mo- uh, mode as as one of the lead human characters, one or more of the lead human characters, but also play through mode is one or more of the, of the non-human animals. Animals. Yeah. 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 Oh, that would have been rad. I think I've been very, very cool. Um, I, I've seen that little trailer and I love it very much. Um, and I've been, uh, begging anyone with any tangential relationship to the Jurassic franchise to please consider, uh, implementing Zarkids in these uh, movies and television series rather than the uh, leathery seagull gremlins that we currently <laughs> yes. have. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, one thing I find very strange about um, about the Jurassic World pterosaurs, aside from the fact that, they, that they're, they're honestly awful reconstructions, yeah. uh, is the fact that, you know, they're they were bending the laws of physics to make them scary when they could have just used bigger, scarier pterosaurs that were real. You know, like, yeah. like okay, you're a Tyrannodon cannot carry off an adult human. It can't even, like, for... Much less a baby, you know, triceratops. A baby triceratops. For multiple reasons, not the least being it doesn't have talons, but it's also just from, like, you know, weight ratios and, right. you, know, and you know, cue Monty Python jokes here. But the... But then on top of that, it's sort of like, it was just very strange because it's like you... You do realize there were actual animals or actual pterosaurs that had a wingspan of a telephone pole and <laughs> and weighed in at like big big grizzly bear, like you know, the higher end yeah. of large terrestrial living predators, and you know, and it looked a giraffe in the eye or would if you know if they you know yeah. lived concurrently. It's like that's you know. That thing can just walk around that plaza and just, you know, unceremoniously murder humans with, <laughs> with uh, It's 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 right there. It's right there on the table. Just, just pick, pick it up. up. It it's it it just continuously bewilders me. Yeah, to be honest. I know that was very very strange. And yes, and they are like shrink wrapped terrible gremlins. You know, it's funny. In fact, the pterosaur anatomy is uh gets worse as the franchise goes on as it goes basically um you know you've got the well i guess you don't see any in the uh uh in the original uh no but the lost world had that kind of pretty decent on that like perched in a tree like a like a falcon right i mean the perching didn't make a lot of sense but but overall it wasn't actually a bad reconstruction and Uh, and the, and at the time that that was released, actually the the the, the perching ability and, f- and foot anatomy wasn't as well known. Um, anyway, sure. So I'm willing yeah. to give them a bit of a pass on that. And uh, but you know it it was cool. It wasn't bad. And then and then what was it? And then in the the third film, they've got the big scary somehow slightly toothed uh, pteranodons. Yeah. But actually, they were pretty good too. Um, I like the fact that they didn't turn them into like lightweight, like foam hang glider animals. That yeah. was cool. Like the uh-huh. fact that it, the, there's a thud as this thing lands on the bridge because there would be because the, you know that's the that's like a you know a, probably a 
50 kilo animal or something that's over 100 pound animal um so yeah. yeah okay fair they're not too bad and then it just goes rapidly downhill and every time you see when they just get more and by the time you get jurassic world it's just yeah it's just yeah it's bad really terrible and and for me like just like what is the behavior motivation for these animals to soar out of a glass dome and attack the nearest shopping plaza i don't understand oh, what yeah the rationality is like it's just it literally I, I just watched gremlins 2 and it was almost no different than gremlins 2 it was the same thing. yes although the <laughs> although the anatomy in gremlins 2 is i think much more realistic um i yeah. would agree um, <laughs> yeah no i mean what, what would actually happen is they would go they would they they're suddenly released they would scatter in all directions and then they would uh and then you know some of them might find the plaza and steal people's tuna sandwiches like that right. would be but that's not what happened it, it was like uh muppet mayhem down at the pandora jewelry yeah store. it really was it was <laughs> muppet mayhem it really is it's like it's like yeah muppets 3d gone wrong um the yeah the uh the other thing of course that's funny about the pterosaurs is that they you know they've now had they had multiple films where they showed them having having been released like in fact that the gate comes open in yeah. Jurassic park three and they see them from the the rescue helicopter lift or whatever to see them you know flying yeah. off into the distance so maybe they're migrating or something it was you know it's fun kind of last little little epilogue note on the film well i mean these things would be showing up the moment that they're out and you see one flying free like you said the end of lost world like the moment they would be it's what's supposed to be like a hundred miles off the coast of Costa Rica. So yeah, yeah. They would be showing up in Central that's America nothing. in like an afternoon. Like that's not a long yeah. way <laughs> for them to go, uh -huh. especially for, especially for Pteranodon, which is what they mostly feature, which was a pelagic, i.e. open ocean. Yeah. Animal. So uh -huh. yeah, that would be, that really actually, it really would be like that. That's a day trip. Um, No problem for it. For sure. So that's funny. I, I mean, well, I have to say, like, a major motivation for me even doing this project is is just my my growing frustration with how dirty they've done their pterosaurs, <laughs> among other things, but especially the pterosaurs, because I have such a love and, and, and I just think they're so fascinating and exciting and mysterious and spooky and beautiful. And like, that's what I want from, from my dinosaur movies. I want that kind of energy conveyed and nothing conveys it better than the mystery of pterosaurs. Like there's no living descendant here for us to even guess at what that looks like. It's just so endlessly fascinating to yeah, me. Well, I, that's one of the reasons why I love them. That's one of the reasons why I started, uh, uh, I started working on them heavily in my professional career. You know, people ask, well, you know, what drew you to pterosaurs? And there's multiple reasons. I originally from a scientific uh, question standpoint, started working on pterosaurs heavily because I was interested in the the limit size limits of flying animals, mm. and so they're the yeah. obvious place to go. But I've just become so broadly fascinated with them for all the reasons you just described and more. Um, and I think they really probably would have been fascinating, beautiful, and enjoyable animals on the whole to have around. Um, I'm not necessarily hugely disappointed that we 
that we do not live alongside large Ashdarkids <laughs> because that you yeah. know, things like Cryodracon and Quetzalcoatlus and Hetzacopteryx could ruin yeah. your day, but i.e. they could just kill you uh, without much trouble, yeah. and that would be that would be a hazardous thing. You know, Quetzalcoatlus uh, was found in a group. So oh. the big one, the, there's only one specimen of the big one, Quetzalcoatlus and Northropy, but there's a smaller right. species um, that's been variably interpreted as juveniles or a separate species. It looks like it's probably a, a separate species uh, that lends us most of the information on Quetzalcoatlus because we know the whole skeleton for that Yeah, between all the different partial skeletons yeah. we've got. Um, but yeah, there were like, like a half a dozen decent skeletons of it found in fairly close proximity in Big Bend. So, yeah. That's really cool. I mean, I can see how that works. Again, watching birds, you know, fan out in a field. And if one bird, you know, scares one little critter, the other bird will get it as in vice right. versa. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But can you, can you just imagine like a row of these just sort of mutualistic? I can. Even if it's not super coordinated, just like stalking through the high under, under I, like, but that, you know, but that would, I mean, but it's terrifying because they're huge. The, 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 this, oh, by the way, it. is the small morph, quote unquote, of of cats. Yeah. Um, and one thing I like that it has uh, has more of a crest, though, right? That's why they don't think it's like a onto ontogeny well, we issue. We don't know if it has more of a crest or not. The all we have from Nerthropy is a wing. That's all oh. we have from the from the big cats. Is yeah. is is uh, a near not even complete, but near pretty near complete left wing. That's all we've got. Wow. But little cats, by the way, they call it, you know, they, I always think it's funny they call it that because little cats. Yeah, little cats. Because it was a it stood about the height of the tallest current player in the NBA. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, uh, yeah, it can dunk with yeah. its face. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that, that's the little guy. Like, like, can you imagine? Can you imagine a group of those stalking across, you know, like a group of them in a row, like you said, stalking across yeah. the, uh, the fields of the late Cretaceous? Like, that would be terrifying. Well, I have a question about that, actually, specifically. Um, you know, of course, if these animals were deployed in a Jurassic something, you know, we all know that they would immediately just be swallowing people whole. With the biomechanics that you've looked into, is that even slightly a possibility? And if not, what would their feeding method be for a for a human? So they would struggle to to swallow an adult human whole, yeah. even the biggest pterosaurs. But uh, Mark Whitten actually did a a nice kind of uh, look at this. He's an old friend of mine and co-author. Uh, who's also a pterosaur specialist. Mm -hmm. And he, uh, so that the, we don't have a lot of skull material from the big guys, yeah. unfortunately, but we do from Hatsigoptrix, which is the one from uh, Transylvania. From yeah, Transylvania, exactly. And, and actually, is it now looks one of the ones from there. Right. So they have multiple species, yeah. but it's the biggest. Yeah. And, and they have some skull material, including part of the palate, so the roof of the mouth. And, and so what he did is he took, okay, they only had the one side, but you can just mirror it. So he mirrored it and figured out what the minimum width of the roof of the mouth would be. Anyway, he found that it could swallow your average fit 12-year-old child whole. Wonderful. 
So it can definitely just like eat your kids and your dog. Yeah. (laughs) You know, and, you know, and, and other cherished family members. Um, for an adult human, it can easily wreck you. I yeah. mean, it can just grab you. The, the head on this thing, on these things, is like fifty percent longer than a rex. Yeah. So it's, you know, it and, and the neck it, musculature must have been really strong as well, right? Yeah, yeah. They've got they've got strong necks. They're often shown very thin, shrink wrapped, but that does that doesn't match. Yeah. The, the the actual bony evidence we have they have really weird neck bones it's like just long like long narrow yeah they're bizarre but they're they're bigger than is given credit for and the the attachments for muscle are are larger than than is given credit for um it's just weird because the there are the certain processes of the of the vertebrae that are normally where like the big mus- neck muscles go. And those are actually small, are small and almost absent in the necks of these animals. But there's other processes that also attach muscles, which are unusually huge huh. in the neck, neck bones of these animals. So they're just, they've, they've built up big different muscles um, than most things do in their neck. But, but from an outside appearance standpoint, what you would see would be a, a strong, relatively stiff strong neck yeah so it's so they've got they've got the they've got the power they need there they've got the big long head and and an adult um you know killing you is no problem they grab you snap your neck or whatever to 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 break you apart (laughs) so they could eat you they'd probably just have to grab you and shake you a bunch and maybe beat you against something nearby um i don't know if you've ever seen what a kookaburra does i sure have yeah yeah um as have i so you know just think you know think kookaburra with something that's a little big to deal with in one go and just you know just just mash well, it's, around a little it's, bit it's been curious to me and uh, so i'm i grew up primarily in florida and so i've just been watching you know wading predatory herons and 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 things mm-hmm. like that just you know scarf down animals that would appear to be at least the length of their skull at at least and then the width just like their neck just expands enormously and then i think of a kookaburra which has like a much more compact neck and gen it's generally seems to have like kind of more flexibility and strength in battering prey animals and you know doing that sort of thing and in my mind the the neck structure of uh, azarkid would be more comparable to the heron uh and that feeding behavior but i guess you were saying that the neck musculature is entirely different in a Quetzalcoatl. It's like different muscles were were augmented. Yes, different muscles are augmented, and uh, and it, it they don't have the super flexible neck of a heron. Herons have lots of neck vertebrae in there. Yeah. Um, uh, whereas you know, like a lot of birds do. I mean, swans have up to I think the thing is twenty three cervical vertebrae. We have seven, by the way. Yeah. Uh, all mammals, all living mammals, have seven. Um, the as the big as darkids, almost all the neck length is made up by actually seven of the cervical vertebrae. Actually, only a three of those really do most of the length. Um, they essentially have se- seven functional cervicals as well. So, uh, and two dorsalized ones. So their their neck is not a heron type of neck yeah uh, and we don't know whether or not they had the hyperextensibility of the soft tissues there the way that like some birds do but we have to remember these are not close these were not close related to birds really um right. no, super distant but not that close 
So they may have had the extensibility of a heron or something like that, but they don't generally have the kind of flexibility. So yeah, somewhere between kookaburra and heron, you know, they cool. have a long neck, but they might have to hit it a little bit more than the heron has to. So, you yeah. know, somewhere, somewhere in there, um, they didn't have, they probably didn't have the kind of skull kinesis, you know, flexibility in the skull that some birds have as well, which sure. would make it hard to swallow anything. Cause their skulls the were fused together really right for the most part yeah yeah for the most part there's a few stuff they don't have they don't have any any crazy extra joints basically right um the way the birds do uh which is part of how that those herons are getting you know getting stuff down there down their gullet that are mm-hmm. really big and things like kookaburras still have those joints but they're not as flexible because they've kind of they've tightened things up as well to get strength probably to yeah you know for their their feeding feeding mode so um yeah kind of kind of bash it like a kookaburra and then swallow chunks like a heron. (laughs) So I'm sure it's abundantly clear now at this point, but I love pterosaurs. I'm absolutely crazy about them. The mysteries that surround them, the crazy diversity of their forms, the enormous size of the astarchids, it's all utterly irresistible to me. One of my pet peeves that often comes up when discussing extinct megafauna, and pterosaurs in particular, is this idea that evolution is somehow progressively linear, that extinct animals were somehow less evolved and thus inferior to the species we find on the Earth today. The reality is, in fact, much different. In this next portion of my discussion with Dr. Habib, we'll go into the wildly successful diversity pterosaurs enjoyed across their 160 plus million year reign, and what fossil evidence might be able to tell us about their social lives. In terms of social behavior, we don't know much for for a fact, although we've got lots of sort of uh, circumstantial evidence for complex social behavior. Uh, for one thing, these things are 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 uh, are utilizing all kinds of crazy physical display communication uh, yeah. structures, particularly head crests and other kinds of weird facial uh, facial structures. Uh, also, mm-hmm. you know, these little weird tail veins on some of the, the earlier pterosaurs and things like this. So they've got all these weird flaps and crests and and such. I mean, some of these things look like a Rose Bowl float. You know, I mean, it's just it's just <laughs> bizarre. And they're just totally ridiculous. You know, it, it, it's not unusual for a pterosaur to have a skull that is two and a half or three times the length of its torso. Yeah. I mean, that's not any unusual. There's some that's like four or more. And then on top of that, they add like a, you know, some sort of improvised flag, (laughs) 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 you know, know, or or like what looks like a radar antenna. Like there's a species of the Nyctosaurus that has what looks like an antler slash radar antenna poking out of the back of its head. So that all indicates some sort of complex social behavior because those are almost certainly signaling devices of some of some measure uh there's multiple lines of evidence that those are are signaling structures for one thing they are much more muted in juveniles um in some cases it looks like there are a couple of different morphs so it might be a male female morph um mm-hmm. and and they just and they they would be so costly in every other way they must be some sort of signaling kind of 
kind of structure and they would work magnificently at that. I mean, there'd be no mistaking that. Uh, and there's been a bit of an interesting raging debate about whether or not this was sort of a species signaling thing as in like, you know, hey, you can mate with me because I'm one of you versus um, more typical sexual selection where it's like, hey, you can mate with me because I'm one of you and I'm the opposite sex. Yeah. Um, and, and that's that's a little hard to tease out because we you know usually don't know if a specimen was a male or a female so unless we have really big samples which only occasionally happens with pterosaurs can we really say oh look there seems to be two kind you know kind of morphs here that could be sexes um and we also don't know whether or not for example the, the you know similar looking bony structures or soft tissue crests could have very different colors in two sexes right we yeah. uh, we only recently got a, a uh any kind of color information from any sort of pterosaur um it looks like the crest of tupendactylus had a lot of melanins in it so it was very darkly pigmented at some level and it may have had other really bright pigments in it and it may have had some kind of iridescence or things like that as well or structural colors um but uh, that we can't tell and and they're just looking at the one individual so we don't know you know they'll have to if they find another one that they can get similar information from that they think it's the same species it looks the same in every way except the color is completely different that would actually be a really cool finding that would indicate probably that there are two sexes and they have both have a similar sized crest but they have totally different color patterns on it to indicate like male versus female has, like has anyone had the opportunity to um uh analyze pycnofibers for any evidence of melanin or anything like that or structural color or anything like that uh i think they they've tried and uh i want to say that they do seem to find melanosomes indicating some dark pigments in some of them but mm, they haven't gotten much um mm. they haven't haven't gotten much um they're not well preserved on a large number of specimens. In the cases where they are, they are. Um, you can often only you know get good samples in a you know few places on them. Yeah. So yeah. and of course the melanosome technique only gives you melanins. Like yeah. So yeah. browns, red, browns, and blacks. And yeah. It's like okay, yeah. so we think some of them were kind of brownish and some of them were kind of blackish. Okay. Um, but they're often kind of scrambled. So like, what, what, what they got lucky with some of the, some of the feathers and proto feathers on some dinosaurs because they were, they, they hadn't been freed from their original position at all, really. Mm -hmm. And so sure, the actual color you're getting back wasn't exciting, but they could get pattern because you'd get a band of, yeah melanin a band of no melanin a band of melanin yeah. you know you know and like yeah. oh this thing was striped yeah and it may have been striped just black and white or it may have been striped like kind of reddish and white because it could have some carotenoids or something in there too or whatever mm -hmm. or it could have been black and red if the areas that were low in melanin are, are were rich in something else that we don't have information on but you can still at least say it was striped and that's cool um it is cool we haven't been able to say that for pterosaurs yet but we do have the tupendactylus uh, crest pigment paper just came out this year actually which is cool yeah um i really hope we get more cool stuff there that's just so exciting i me. think we will i think we will and i think that's probably the place to go is the soft tissue crests with them yeah i think we're i think i think one thing that paper showed is that actually there's there is more promise there than the pigment fibers at present uh I, if i'm not mistaken pterosaurs existed on the earth to our knowledge uh significantly longer than avian birds right um longer yes but not by 
all, too, too much. much. Um, I mean, they, they arrive much earlier. Are we? We you know mm-hmm. the, the earliest ones. Um, the show up in the fossil record a good bit earlier. So we think that the evolutionary origins of pterosaurs uh, is like middle Triassic, about maybe 230, 240 million years ago, something like that. Um, with the, we've got, and we'd have good pterosaur fossils from like two, I guess they're like two dated between like 215 and 220 million years. Um, the okay. earliest things that, that we consider to be within the, within AVs, so that that fall within the clade defined by like a you know modern bird and say a tyrannosaurus rex um would be you get that would be would be like uh we call manoraptora and then you get a little bit more specific more specific and then like you know you get like a modern sparrow and say archaeopteryx that would be like mm-hmm. your 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 true birds um and they start with archaeopteryx uh at about 150 million years old uh so that's the uh that's the late in late jurassic so there's a big gap there but of course birds have made it to the present and pterosaurs have not so pterosaur duration yeah. ends up being about 160 to 170 uh if you assume that that there's a little bit of an extension there because we haven't found the earliest pterosaur yeah. yet and uh and birds even if what we have is the earliest uh which probably isn't quite but maybe we're close you're looking at at 150 duration yeah okay so it's a little less yeah, than little little less than what pterosaurs really they're the real claim to fame in that regard is being the first vertebrates on the block is uh, as regards right. power flight yeah by, and, flight. Th- and that they and that they beat birds too by a good margin and bats too by an even larger margin so yeah and it's interesting to think about them having the first powered flight like the first vertebrate flying I would have imagined that they would have exploited every potential uh, ecological niche on the globe possible. I would imagine. Well, probably. Um, uh, The thing is, the fossil record from mid-Triassic locations is not great. We've got good late Triassic um, localities, still not a lot of pterosaurs from those. Um, not a lot of early Jurassic pterosaurs, so we don't really start getting a good record until like middle to really late Jurassic. Um, mm-hmm. At which point, there seem to be a lot of pterosaurs in a lot of places, but we still only get a lot of specimens from a relatively small number of places on the globe. So they probably, I mean, we and we know they got really diverse and and had a worldwide right. dis- distribution uh, for much of the Mesozoic. We don't know really how quickly that happened because we just Mm. don't have enough information early on it's perfectly reasonable to expect that they kind of explode there was this kind of explosion yeah we don't have any evidence for it we don't have any evidence against it we just don't we just got a lot of unknowns when you uh, throughout your research have you been able to find pterosaur analogs for all if not most of the uh very specific niches that birds have found themselves in today like um i mean it's often spoken about how pterosaurs were uh at least when i was growing up primarily you know sea going uh marine feeding uh flyers um what i mean birds there there's so many like bill shapes and forms all over the place 
do you think that pterosaurs likely have such a broad range, like a comparable range of speciation to the demands of all these niches that are available? It's comparable. Um, it, you kind of think of it as sort of a Venn diagram. So there is a lot of thing with a lot of overlap. So there's, there's a lot of things that birds do uh, and bats do that pterosaurs did. Uh, there's some things that they don't seem to have quite covered. Uh, and there's also some things they did that nothing else seems to have done. So, for mm. example, there's just nothing, of course, comparable really to the giant stork from hell uh, yeah. mode that was the big edge targets. Um, yeah. On the other hand, we don't have a, anything that really seems all that songbird-like amongst uh, pterosaurs. Um, we they. While there were probably some, uh, probably actually quite a number of terrestrial and marine hunters uh, amongst them, there probably weren't any that were like raptorial, uh, like a, at least we haven't found any so far, like a mm. hawk or an eagle or anything with, you know, big talons that could take particularly large prey, yeah. you know, just snatch it while on the wing kind of thing. Um, but uh, we do have filter feeding pterosaurs we've got you know yeah uh, what seem to have been you know carrion feeding uh long distance soaring pterosaurs we have probably uh ground hunting super storks we have uh insect munching aerial hawking things like you know sort of like a nightjar mm -hmm. or, or a lot of bats uh we seem to have fruit nut uh munchers uh we've got clam crackers uh may have also been bone crackers part of the time uh we have oh boy uh we've got uh got oh, pursuit ground predators um maybe some pursuit aerial predators as well although grabbing things with your face what what does a pursuit ground predator look like exactly? uh some of the so some of the istiodactylids may have done this and also a couple of folks have Propose that for some of the um, what are called ashrachoids, particularly tapiarids. Um, so, mm -hmm. like Thalassodromius was um, was proposed to have been a skim feeder. Um, there's still some su uh, suggestions that it was, but there was also work indicating that um, that its size and and aspects of its shape would have precluded that. So skim feeding would be you dip the mandible into the water at high speed, just, you know, and just snatching yeah. stuff. But it does have this blade on the mandible. Um, and and so that this led to an argument of, well, why does it have this blade if it doesn't? Anyway, it actually looks like Thalassodromius and its real close relatives were pretty good on the ground, um, probably decent, hmm. decent runners. And so um, I suggested that maybe the blade is an actual blade, not a water cutting blade, but a an animal cutting blade, and this thing, like a like a slasher yeah. movie, uh, basically a slasher movie pterosaur. So it may have just been it may just, it may just be a guillotine, uh, just a running flying guillotine. <clears throat> wow. Um, and just yeah, just slices things. Mark Whitten has illustrated that actually. He's got a beautiful painting of of two Thrasyldromius just like running across a or a Cretaceous landscape just you know destroying things by you know cutting them up i've got to see that 
And so I would imagine if there was like a heavily derived flightless pterosaur, it probably would have popped up in that lineage. Uh, that's that's a possibility. Um, it could show up there. It could certainly show up in Ashdarkids uh, proper. The you know the the ones that include the super giants, yeah. uh, which seem to have been quite uh, adept on the ground, comparatively speaking, as well. That's one thing we don't really have any good evidence for at present. Um, is any flightless pterosaurs? Uh, there is a group that says they think they have a, a giant flightless pterosaur, uh, but it hasn't been described. Um, a skeletal mount was actually put on display at one point, but there's no formal description of the literature. And uh, I'm, I'm personally not. What's the holdup on know. that? I don't know. You know, it's one of these things where huh. it's just I'm, this is not a team that I happen to know particularly well. Um, and yeah. so I don't know what what it is that they think might be might be uh, in, indicative of a flight loss in it. Um, but we'll see. Uh, you know, it might be, it might also just be a matter of them trying to be very thorough, knowing that that, that such a claim would be a, a pretty, you know, pretty big shakeup, uh, so to speak. And, and sure. they don't, you know, they don't want to, 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 uh, ruffle any feathers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, they don't, they know they're going to ruffle some feathers. They, they don't want to do it without having yeah. really done their homework. You know, so they might just be they, exactly. might, uh, yeah. they might just be taking their time and running and rerunning. And can we come at this in any other way? And you know, because they we don't want to get totally trashed in review on this uh, on this thing just because of people's knee jerk reaction. So it, it, it might just be taking a lot a lot of time to do that. It may also be that they didn't have the whole thing prepped, and it was kind of a initial reaction thing where they're like, mm, "This looks like it's flightless to us with the first quarter of it or whatever that we have prepped out of the rock but right. we don't we can't describe it until the whole thing is out so it may and prep can take a very long time i have no idea what kind of matrix what kind of sediment this thing's in sometimes these things get preserved and stuff that's got the material properties of concrete <laughs> and it can take a very long time <laughs> to get it done um oh. and of course a lot of prep labs have been uh heavily affected by the pandemic so yeah, it, they might imagine the so. might just literally be on hold. I have no idea. Gosh, I really hope y'all enjoyed this conversation with Dr. B like half as much as I have. I, I really can't stress enough what an incredible joy and privilege it was to speak about some of my favorite animals with one of the humans that understands them the best. One major element that we'll no doubt be discussing pretty consistently throughout the show concerns paleo art and creature design. Easily, one of my favorite aspects of being a paleo obsessive is experiencing the incredible work of paleo artists all over the world, bringing these creatures back to life across so many different mediums. For better or worse, I'd say Jurassic Park might be the single most popular form of paleo art the world has ever, or maybe will ever know. However, in 2021, there is a flourishing and diverse community of artists out there that might just be bringing us closer to actually witnessing the truth and beauty of these creatures than genetic engineering ever could. Which brings me to, well, have, have y'all seen the Star Wars prequels? While I certainly have, let's say, mixed feelings about them, I don't think anyone could deny the incredible creatures that were introduced across the entire trilogy. Those critters were designed by, in my humble opinion, one of, if not the best, creature artists of all time, Terrell Whitletch. Beyond designing legendary movie monsters, Terrell Whitletch is known for bringing illustrated animals to life in ways no one else can. Seriously. 
Google her stuff. She has several gorgeous books that are essential texts for aspiring paleo or creature artists. In this next and sadly final portion of our chat with Dr. Habib, I'll just be fanboying out wildly over an extremely exciting upcoming collaboration he has with Tara Wetlatch, as well as other really wonderful projects he's had a hand in over the years. Enjoy. I love Tara Whitletch's work so much. Like since I can remember, like for a long time, I've been a big, big. I guess what since the the start the uh, prequels mm -hmm. came out is when I was introduced to her work, and I've just been a huge fan of her creature design since. And when I saw her in the Scientific American, I was just like, "Whoa, so cool!" Yeah. Oh, <laughs> thanks. Yep. So, yep. So I wrote. Yeah, Chris. Yes, that was that article. So uh, actually. She got recruited for that Sci American article by me because she and I were already working together. We actually did an article together for Journal of Natural Science Illustration, and now we're doing a book. Uh, we've been working together for a few years now. Um, Can you tell me about the sure. book? Sure, it's a uh, really working curious. title is, is "Flying Monsters," and it is a, uh, about anatomical reconstruction of all kinds of winged creatures, living and fossil, as well as uh, particularly paleo-inspired. Um, you know, imagined flying creatures. Uh, and so it involves all kinds of, I mean, we were re-envisioning re dragons and hippogriffs and cockatrices in there that's like based on microraptorines and all kinds of crazy stuff. We have a, uh, we, we've got our take on the Dracula narrative, which is uh, just a, a giant throat-gutting, a vampire bat with uh, with as dark and pterosaur kinds of proportions, basically, to make it like Ooh. flight and launch capable at giant size. So it's got like a it's got like a one meter long head <laughs> and just Whoa. cookie cutters, mammoths. So it's it's kind of like a Dougal Dixon speculative evolution in some kind places. Of and in other cases, a little it's, bit. It's straight up fantasy, yeah. but they're still like we've like made the dragons like anatomically like plausible and like launch capable and stuff using like pterosaur anatomy and things like that um so rad working with tara whitlatch must be like just like a fun fantasy oh it totally is so the, so in terms of the, our actual meeting if you want the full story um uh so i was asked to give a presentation at the santa cruz meeting you know moves every year like a lot of things do to um uh sort of santa cruz meeting of the Guild of Natural Science Illustrators. Okay, cool. And so I, uh, so I went to the, so I, so, so I go to this, this meeting, really excited to go to a GNSI meeting and present on reconstructing Mesozoic vertebrates, particularly pterosaurs and, and dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that one of the keynote speakers is Terrell Whitlatch. I'm like, oh, definitely, you know, of course, going to that, and and I'm, you know, front and center and just eating it up because I'm already, you know, such a fan of her work, and yeah, uh, and then at the end, of course, she's doing book signings, and uh, and actually, I had her Wildlife of Star Wars book in my backpack. I had not meant to bring it for a signing because I had <laughs> done my homework and like looked at all the speakers, but I happened to have it because I just love it. And I've been reading it, whatever, and I had had it um, on my trip, so I was like. Great, I'll have her sign it. So I go up and fanboy hard, right? And I'm like, "Can you sign my book?" You know, yeah. And I'm wearing my my conference badge, and she goes, "Oh, you're, 
you're Dr. Habib. I'm going to be coming to your talk later on Mesozoic Vertebrates. And on the outside, I managed to go, oh, that's fantastic. Thank you so much. I look forward to seeing you there. On the inside, I just squeal. Just right, like just a high pitched, sustained, you know, yeah. squeal of a 10 year old boy, but fortunately only yeah. an internal monologue. And yeah. so, and sure enough, she shows up, she's front and center for my talk. And after she came, she says, you know, I really wanted to work on my pterosaur reconstructions for a long time. We should do some something together. I'd really be interested in teaming up. And I'm like, again, internal squeal outside. I think that's fantastic. Yeah. I would love to do that. <laughs> and, um, so anyway, uh, yeah, and that, and so she, she talked to the the president of GNSI and was like, "Hey, we were thinking about maybe doing an article for the journal." And they're like, "Oh, that'd be very cool." Anyway, it turned out it turned into the cover article for the 50th year anniversary edition of the journal. Wow! Um, so more internal squealing. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and and yeah. And then, and then it was like, well, there's so much we've done so much here. There's so much that we couldn't fit into this article. There's a lot here, and 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 the president of GNSI was actually the one who was like, well, you guys should do a book. Terrell's done so many awesome books. You guys should team up do a book. You know, Mike, you've done lots of writing. Yeah. You should, uh, you should do, uh, you should do a book. And we were like, yeah, okay, great. Yeah, sounds awesome. So she introduced <laughs> me to the folks at Design Studio Press who have published most of her books and hit it off there well. They thought the concept was great, and off to the races, and we've been working ever since. Ever since. I'll tell you what, if you haven't already, check out the art of Brian Eng. Oh, I'm very okay. familiar. You are very familiar. Yeah. yeah, it's like, this is what the Mesozoic might really look like. It ain't pretty. <laughs> it's weird as fuck. Yeah, weird as fuck. Uh, Brian's a friend of mine. Uh, incidentally, he and I get on get on very well, and 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 we really feed each other's <laughs> more like terrifying yeah. and uh, and R rated uh, animal reconstruction tendencies. Yeah, Just like like yeah, he did one. He did one of a sauropod stomping on an allosaur, and like the allosaur's abdomen just pops, and like all of its viscera just spill out. <laughs> He's the one, by the way, that actually coined the term giant flying murder heads oh really okay pterosaurs. yeah that was that, that came as a conversation between the two of us we sort of coined it together really but it's mostly him um we were doing a tour through the pterosaurs uh traveling exhibit when it came to la which so was I, I like a religious experience for me when i uh saw it at the american museum of natural history oh so you saw it when it launched at the am and age okay, yeah cool. so, so I guess then, so you know that I was the lead consultant on that yeah. exhibit. Like yeah. That. Yeah. Yeah. So I was so, yeah. So the the leads on that were the two co-curators, co I don't know if I can speak with help, the two co-curators, Alexander Kellner and Mark Norell, and then myself is the, uh, is the plucky uh, sidekick lead consultant. <laughs> um, uh, and it's, it's largely focused on flight. And I, basically did all the flight stuff so i'm you know heavily involved very proud of that project for sure you should be um did you were you. did you develop that simulator sort of thing uh essentially yes so i so love that so much that was so rad oh thank you yeah so they they purchased a bare bones um motion capture flight simulator and then they had a really amazing animator and games development team there and I wrote new equations to form the base of the 
that they 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 basically rebuilt it um off of the off of the new the 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 new math so yeah so i i i basically wrote the new i wrote the new physics and that's then beautiful they, and then they coded it because i'm not not a not also is that how you and uh, seamus blackley know each other through like physics engines and stuff like that uh basically yeah. um it, we re- we initially met because he wanted to get my take on that trailer oh okay yeah he's a pterosaur fan yeah and and it was back when he was pitching pitching a game we've known each other ever since but yeah we've worked together actually on some stuff we did a um we did a tv show together uh for cbc which should be coming to one the american i think it's coming to the smithsonian channel um, us at some point it's release dates have been delayed because of uh pandemic yeah. related yeah. issues uh which many things have of course um but there there is a short clip essentially trailer uh of the two of us doing a bite rig test big ankle sword biting a borea pelt to armor um, well, well, a bite, uh, who biting an uh a notosaur a big acrocanthosaurus Oh, okay, cool. So we 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 uh, uh, we built a or Seamus's team really built. I helped design a uh, a full size acrocanthosaur head uh, skull, basically uh, with uh, ceramic teeth that mimic actual en- enamel properties. He's got cool. a great ceramic specialist in his his current company um, who custom designed enamel property. Uh, ceramics, wow. and then and then he's got a polymer expert who did keratin property polymers, and Ooh. they did a bone property um, ceramic as well. And so we built a section of Boreal Pelta with accurate material property armor as best we could do it. And then you've got material accurate material property teeth biting it with realistic forces, all at at one to one scale. Wow! And we did this for this for this show, and then yeah, he I mean he still has the rig. We're planning to do other fun stuff with it. That um, is so rad. So that was, that's the most most extensive project I did with him. That was uh, summer before before last. That's um, so cool. So that was fun. Each episode of Neo Jurassic will include the Jurassic hopes and fantasies of one individual Jurassic fan. Seeing as how we ended our conversation with Dr. Habib wigging out over paleo art icons like Tara Whitlatch and Brian Eng, I figured we might as well feature my friend Cameron. Cam is a truly wonderful paleo artist and animator, and like many of y'all, has a long and loving relationship with the Jurassic franchise. (laughs) Trigger warning, lol. This conversation got a little saucy over some of the recent creature design elements of the franchise, but please, please, please understand, any and all criticism is coming from a place of deep love and reverence for the history of the franchise. For those interested, y'all can follow Cam's work on both Twitter and Instagram at CamTheCowboyMan. Yeah, in addition to being a dinosaur nut, Cam is also the ultimate creative manifestation of the almighty horse girl archetype. Uh, In addition to producing beautiful, beautiful works of various dinosaurs and ceratopsians, there are a lot of horses and other equine creatures populated throughout his work. It's it's beautiful stuff. Really, really lovely. Yeah, his work is truly beautiful, and he's going to have a lot of seriously cool projects coming away in the years to come. Like some very cool projects that y'all are going to be really into when it happens. Anywho, we're going to go ahead and begin our conversation discussing the Jurassic franchise's influence and aspiring Cam to pursue this life of critters, creature design, and animation.
actually have quite the history with the Jurassic franchise because like when I was like six years old, I would like watch it with my nanny and I'd be like scared behind the couch of like the Velociraptor in the kitchen scene. And then I would watch like the two hour bonus features that's narrated by James Earl Jones on VHS and like he would talk about the production and making the dinosaurs and the concept design and the animatronics and like the go motion to the full on animation and all of that. And I learned all about animation and creature design and concept art and all that through the uh, original Jurassic Park behind the scenes like VHS collectors yeah. edition, whatever and so that got me into drawing and sculpting dinosaurs and that actually kind of jump-started my artistic and uh, creative endeavors in general was like drawing and sculpting dinosaurs based off of Stan Winston stuff and so I ended up like getting further into art went to arts back in high school in Dallas and because I grew up in Dallas and I ended up as a docent at the Pro Museum of Nature and Science in the Dinosaur Wing and I got super into paleontology and like paleo art I'm a huge fan of rj palmer and like that kind of like being in twitter and being around dinosaurs kind of got mm -hmm. me more in the paleo art sphere and then i ended up going to school for animation and it just so happened that jack horner as in like that jack horner paleontologist jack horner was a professor at my university and my uh senior my uh, senior thesis animation film for my animation school because i was going to school for animation was about a little young deinonychus coming to life and so he consulted on my project and so i got i learned even more about jurassic park and then i went to the 25th anniversary event at universal and met jack horner and jack horner showed my film to like uh phil tippett who was there and there was this whole thing and i cried and oh my god <laughs> i didn't know that that's so yeah. cool yeah and i got to meet like Laura Dern and Jeff Goldblum were there, and that was fun. I got to meet them, and I met, I talked, I got to meet the entire Frontier team because Jurassic World Evolution was being showcased there, so I talked to the devs there for a long time, and I got super into game dev. I also ended up working on the Isle, that dinosaur game, for a little bit after that, designing skins for their dinosaurs. Oh, really? And, yeah. Cool. Uh, yeah, like, sophomore year of college, and, like, this is all, like, it's, it's just a little bit out of order, but, like, I have a quite extensive history dinosaurs would kind of like bloom during college and then i actually ended up doing dinosaur concept art for jack horner's traveling exhibition that i don't know when that's coming out thanks covid but like i did that and then it all comes back around to uh yeah i got back i got into a dinosaur documentary series because everyone knew us so into dinosaurs and i have all the animation experience and the museum experience and that's what i'm doing now so that's like jurassic the Jurassic franchise is pretty integral to like my artistic development, let alone my professional development. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I'm a huge fan, and that's again, that's why I'm a little bit disappointed with the direction they're going. But hopefully, Dominion changes things. But yeah, did I, you did you see Camp Cretaceous? I loved Camp Cretaceous like a lot. Okay, so yeah, there I, is some of the direction that you. you oh enjoyed. yes, yeah. but I think I think primarily the direction that I enjoy with Camp Cretaceous is that it was so true to the Jurassic franchise, like. Right. Because I think it was much more so than the movies. Exa the new exactly. Movies. Exactly. Yeah. And because like Camp Cretaceous was made by DreamWorks and like a really good friend of mine that I went to college with was actually a production assistant on Camp Cretaceous at DreamWorks. And so like she started telling me about it way back when. And so like I got super hyped about it and she was like, oh yeah, we're being super true to the franchise, like even a little bit more so than Jurassic World was. I'm like, really? And so it came out and my boyfriend and I watched it like all in one night the day it came out and we loved it. And he's not even like, he's like, he likes like monster movies and sci-fi and horror yeah. movies and all that stuff. So he's not a huge like Jurassic fan. Yeah. And he liked Jurassic World, but like Fallen Kingdom, even even he admitted was like, eh, it's okay. Yeah. But um we watched Camp Cretaceous, we're like, holy crap, that was incredible. Like that it was, was so like great. 
it was great. Like it was so authentic to like what we knew about like the behind the scenes of that like physical park in Jurassic World, yeah. let alone like the concept art that was like contributed to the, the Camp Cretaceous with all yeah. like the fence designs and the animals that were supposed to be there but weren't in Jurassic World and all that stuff. Like it was so cool how they incorporated all the fan lore and the DPG stuff into Camp Cretaceous. So, so Jurassic is such an influential part of your creative and professional life. What do you think it is that that Jurassic accessed in you in your heart and mind um honestly i think it was like the commitment to like animal accuracy not so much like paleo accuracy because obviously they missed the bar and some of those even in original but yeah. like it's more so that like at least in the beginning and at least at least i would say through uh, the lost world uh, they were committed to making the dinosaurs seem like animals and like mm -hmm. that was very integral to like how i how I like proceed and like not proceed proceeded in my um career because it was all about like I have a huge focus on animal animation yeah. and making like the animals like feel like animals and less like monsters because like even on I've worked on some Marvel movies and some other ILM stuff and like all of my focus has been like referencing like real life analogs even when it comes down to like documentary series animation it's all about like referencing as much as you can from real animals and making them seem way less like these sci-fi yeah. monsters that Jurassic yeah. World has kind of turned them into and like that was the main draw for me I guess in the first film because it was mm -hmm. like what would these like animals be like if they were alive nowadays but not so much to like the extent that like jaws is like what if there's a man-eating shark it's like what if there's a dinosaur but it actually acted like a dinosaur i don't know like it, i guess because jaws made it seem more like a monster than an animal yeah and it was the focus on like i mean that's also the kind of, kind of concept that like what makes us love docuseries so much like when you look at like prehistoric park or like walking with dinosaurs like the reason why those are so popular is because they portrayed dinosaurs acting like dinosaurs yeah and like the original jurassic did that as well to an extent so i don't know i guess that's why i, I feel the first two that. movies kind of adhere to it and then after exactly. that it's been mostly out the window really exactly and i guess jurassic world is more the reason why it got me a little bit more interested in the jurassic franchise is just because it at least in the beginning kind of treated a lot of them like real animals yeah and then then dominus happened but uh like seeing the park running and seeing like a zoological park was really interesting to me just because yeah. like i i have a background like i worked at the dallas zoo as well and SeaWorld for a little bit so it was like how would a park with dinosaurs run for in 2015 so what would you personally like to see in the future of the franchise? And I mean this in the broadest sense. So, so well, I mean, the first thing that immediately came to mind is, like, I don't know. I do a lot of paleo art in my spare time, and, like, my main focus is ceratopsians a lot of the time, especially triceratops. And I literally, mm -hmm. like, one of my biggest wishes is just to see a triceratops that doesn't have elephant feet in popular yeah. culture. Like, yeah. just once. <laughs> like, that was, like, the number one thing that pisses me off with, like, at least with the original Jurassic Park, like, I don't know, they had, like, a leeway, but the fact that yeah. they even updated the Triceratops design to be pretty totally different from the original, and they still yeah. didn't update it with that in mind, yeah. kind of annoyed the crap out of me. But, uh, I don't know. Otherwise, I would like to see, like, like how, like, Primal is just so unashamed with its gore and violence of, like, prehistoric animals. Like, I don't want to see, like, to the, to the Primal extent where, like, the heads are exploding and all that stuff, but, like, I'd yeah. like to see, like, real authentic creature like horror and gore and like thriller like because right now everything seems so filtered towards kids and everything has to be marketable towards kids and the yeah. gore and the plot lines and everything has to be marketable towards children and that's fine because it's dinosaurs and i guess that comes with the territory but i would like to see like a jurassic 
like Battle of Big Rock was close, but it was also still a little bit like yeah. to- toddlerified. But yeah. like dark and gritty and realistic, and like dinosaurs are allowed to rip into people, like in the original book, or like I don't know, like even in the original Jurassic Park, like you don't even see Arnold get his arm ripped off. Like just something like seeing something like that, just taking a stance towards one of those more mature dark tones like the boys or even like dark comedy or something like that i don't know something a little bit heavier and more adult themed would be and well more like written towards like a filmmaking yeah, standpoint yeah. and less That's, like yeah. less like a theme park ride i don't know something taken more seriously i guess is the overall takeaway from what i just said yeah just take itself more seriously and less gratuitous and over the top in action blockbuster you know yeah yeah, like, it has become like just like another action movie franchise at this point. And the original was like much more like thought provoking and yeah. like had deeper themes and, and maybe. I yeah, I take itself more seriously and just commit like slightly more to scientific accuracy. Like if they're gonna bring on a whole new site like paleo consultant and make a big deal out of it, like at least try. Yeah. So and not Jurassic Parkify everything. Like even the I know the Allosaurus juvenile design in Falling Canyon was like decent and at least it seems like they reference they reference the skeletal by hartman or something but like i I think with battle big rock they like kind of ripped that apart because they made it like t-rex sized and like really robust and it was what how does the juvenile turn into that i have no idea but yeah it seems like a completely different species it seems like a sorophaganax or something yeah no it seems like a giga like a giganotosaurus or something like something like huge and like not at all an allosaurus so it was very like and also the pseudoceratops is like way oversized like way three oversized. times oversized. and also has the elephant feet yeah and like they it, it even seems like that's the frustrating thing with the pseudoceratops like everything else is great but yeah. if you like it's feet if you just like tried like it's defining the anatomy a little bit more in the feet it would have been perfect <sighs> i wish they would have like made the carnotaurus horns a little more long and ornate i mean with all of the design okay, but you I, have to admit they literally just directly copied the sideshow carnotaurus like oh directly I like i know uh, they there do is, that all the time, and it's so upsetting to me. They just copy something. Like, it, the Allosaurus is just the Allosaurus toy, that, like, blue and gray one that's, like, Papa or Shark. Papa, like, yeah. Yeah. Like, it's literally, like, these are, you're just copying toys. You're not even trying to take, like, an artistic license with them like the originals did. Yeah. That's what you do. <laughs> it's so frustrating. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it, at this point, is nitpicking, and it's redundant because we know they're never really going to change, but... yeah. I'm going to try, Cameron. I'm doing a fucking (laughs) podcast that's trying to bridge the divorce worlds of paleo art and dinosaur enthusiasts in the Jurassic franchise. I'm trying to get them back together again. I love that, and that's why I'm here for it. But I just, I don't know. Well, I hope something changes, honestly, because it's going to be really depressing that science keeps progressing and, like, things, really, really interesting stuff comes out about dinosaurs that, like, the mainstream just doesn't even acknowledge or know about because it's not Jurassic Park. It's 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 not even like the lack of accuracy that's that upsetting to me. It's just the profound dis like like lack of respect and interest and enthusiasm for creating these things. Like oh, the, that too. the design of the yeah. animals in the first two movies, even the third are Oh Spinosaurus iconic, was really really cool. Yeah. yeah. And now they're just copying like toys. It's like what? 
Like, they need to be better. They need to be better. They need to be better. Oh, my phone just went off, and it's the T-Rex roar. I don't know if you heard that. <laughs> I did, yeah. <laughs> Mine is the raptor call, actually. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. I have the T-Rex roar, and then my ringtone is the theme. And I'm wearing a Jurassic Park shirt. Like, I'm a huge fan of this franchise. I want people to understand that. <laughs> yeah, I know. Me too. I'm wearing yeah. head-to-toe Jurassic clothing right now, too. I mean, it's, it's kind of embarrassing, but... It, exactly, like... But the people always take it as the second you criticize the franchise, you criticize the dinosaurs, you're not a yeah. true fan, or you're not... It's all nah. this stuff, and it's like, that's not it. I want it no. to be good. I want it to I'm, be great. I'm, I'm going to try to ram these two worlds back together and see if we can get some something happening here, because it needs to happen at this point. Um, next agree. question. Okay. If you could introduce any extinct species into the Jurassic franchise, what would it be? I mean, jokingly, okay, well, first off, my first, like, my biggest want before Fallen Kingdom was Pachyrhinosaurus, and you saw where that went. Yeah. <laughs> and then it turned into Sinoceratops, which isn't even really a Sinoceratops. Yeah. Anyways, because uh, Pach Pachyrhinosaurus, besides Triceratops, is, like, one of my favorite dinosaurs. So that would be it. If I'm trying to think of something else. Um, I mean, did we reintroduce to the franchise or, like, introduce, like, in general? New, like a new, a new okay. introduction. Okay, because I want Spinosaurus to come back really badly. But uh, new, I would like... Do you want the Spinosaurus to come back in its new form, as we know it, or representative of the 2001? Oh, I want it to be the 2001 one, because that would be... I think, especially with the whole like biosyn genetic engineering takes over the world angle that Dominion is going for, Like, yeah. why would they not have... A, I know the lore behind the DPGs. It's, it's like the, some deranged cancerous like monster that has like on a killing spree because it's like it was like proto indominus or something. Yeah. And so like that is a cool concept. Like it's like a dinosaur, and like that is a good explanation for why the spinosaurus is so different from other dinosaurs. So like yeah. are what the spinosaurus we know it as, and like that's a really cool angle to go at it as. And I thought that was really cool, and I like the design of the spinosaurus a lot, even though it's just baryonyx with the sail. Like it's cool and has a cool color scheme. So I would really I mean, love that a, to come back. A better baryonyx with the sail than the baryonyx in Fallen Kingdom. A hundred percent. Like the baryonyx mods in like Jurassic Park Operation Genesis are better baryonyx than the yeah. baryonyx in Fallen Kingdom. <laughs> Yeah, it's but, uh, that but, is the worst thing to come out of Fallen Kingdom for me was the Baryonyx. That broke my heart. It's just Gator Saurus or whatever. Or, it's the Saur Gator. Yeah. Uh, like, just thin its head out. Like, Fred, we were in Fred the Dinosaur Man. He did, yeah. like, an edit of it. And oh, it's, made it. I saw that, and it's yeah. beautiful. I love yeah. it. And why wouldn't they do that? It's such an alien, unique, iconic look and yet they just go for a souped up crocodile on two legs and like give it all the scoots and the crocodile tail i know who knows, who knows? it but makes me so sad dinosaur that i want okay um i would really like to see well see i'm a big ceratopsian fan and the pseudoceratops pachyrhinosaurus triceratops i already have all those uh Do you typically prefer centrosaurines or chasmosaurines See, I love Chasmosaurus just because I watched Prehysteria as a kid, that like stop motion oh, movie yeah. with the dinosaur puppets, and it was the Chasmosaurus. I loved yeah. them. Uh, but I don't know. I think I, but like I do also love Triceratops a lot. And yeah, yeah I think I prefer Chasmosaurids just for drawing because they have all like the high angular stuff. And, and yeah, they're so elegant. Exactly. And Centrosaurids are more like buffalo, bulky, yeah. like naughty, yeah. like. I don't know. So it's like that different, but I drawing and animation wise, I love Casposaurians more. Oh, I but love them so much. I would love to see, honestly, like maybe like 
an ichthyosaur would be cool, or even mm-hmm. like going into Cenozoic, like a mammoth Jurassic Parkify. Like it would just be like a brown mammoth, white like Ice Age mammoth, probably. But like I'd just like to see how they took it. I don't know if they mm-hmm. ever took some because I'm a big like I love elephants and mammoths and stuff, mm-hmm. so that would be cool. And since they have a Lystrosaurus, like a Diacodon, oh no no, a Gorgonops, a Gorgonops would be awesome in the Jurassic yeah. franchise. Yeah, or, I know Strancevia or something that yeah. would be really cool because they already are going Permian, so why not go with that? For it's sure, literally like dinosaur version of the saber toothed cat. Yeah, they're cool. So that would be actually, yeah, I think that's going to be my final answer. I know Strancevia would be pretty awesome because okay, Primeval kind of clued me onto them, and so I got obsessed with them through that. Well, it's been a long time coming, but there it is, and there it goes. Episode 1 of the New Jurassic Podcast has concluded. If you've made it this far, oh my god, thank you. I sincerely hope you all have enjoyed the ride, and very much hope that you'll join me for future episodes as well. Next week, for instance, is one I'm particularly excited about. We'll be taking a look at the wild possibilities of a herd of Dinochiris escaping the private zoo of a Floridian drug lord and flourishing in the Florida Everglades. Sure sounds problematic, and I can't wait! Be sure to like, subscribe, tell your friends, and tune in. Until then, bye.